History, the bite-sized birthday biography podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Mira. This is a daily podcast which shines a spotlight on a person born on this day at some point in history somewhere in the world who made a positive lasting impact. Today, October 10th, we're going to celebrate the birth and life of Dr. Frederick Douglass Patterson, who was born on this day in 1901 in Washington, D.C. Dr. Frederick Douglass Patterson shared more than just his name with his namesake, Frederick Douglass. They had the most, or one of the most, I should say, tragic of bonds that two humans can have. They both grew up without their parents. Frederick Douglass had been born to an enslaved woman, and this made him an enslaved infant in the eyes of the law. And his father was supposedly his mother's enslaver. He was separated from his mother as an infant, and he was given to his enslaved grandmother and free grandfather to be raised. He only saw his mother a few times before he turned seven and she died. Today's human in history, Dr. Frederick Douglass Patterson, was obviously named after him, and he too would go on to be raised by a family member after both of his parents died of tuberculosis when he was two years old. For him, it was an older sister that took him in. Her name was Wilhelmina, but she went by Bess. Bess was a school teacher in Texas, and she saved half of her monthly $20 salary to pay for Frederick to go to private school. It was pretty hard for her to raise a growing boy on her own, and at times he was farmed out to other relatives, aunts and cousins, and so on. This was obviously an insane amount of trauma for a kid. Both parents dead when he was a toddler, bounced from house to house. God, like my son is two, and the thought of this happening to him is just making me tear up. Even though Frederick was a really bright kid, he was still obviously impacted by all the loss that he went through, and he acted out a little bit in school. In eighth grade, his classmates voted him the least likely to succeed. Seriously, like this was something schools used to do. They gave out shame awards. Oh God, it's so gross. But thankfully, once he left Samuel Houston College in Austin and he moved on to Prairie View Normal and Industrial Institute, these names are so weird, things turned around and his intelligence finally found a place to, to root and blossom. While he was there, he was placed in the agriculture department and he began to cross paths with a lot of veterinarians who he really admired, and that inspired him to go into veterinary medicine. He did a total deep dive into academia, and by the time he surfaced at the age of 31 in 1932, he had a doctorate in veterinary medicine, making him a licensed vet. He had a master's of science from Iowa State and a doctorate of philosophy from Cornell. He went to Tuskegee University in Alabama, and he took a post as the head of the agricultural department. Under his guidance, the veterinary program there became such a beacon of excellence in the country that the state of Alabama provided student loans for white students to study at this all-black college, a totally unheard of thing in the segregated South. His experience in higher academia was a steady in contrast, so to speak, because on one hand, he was in a doctorate program, right? So that was like the highest level of a degree available to any human in the world. But on the other hand, he was still made to eat at separate tables sometimes. Just this glaring reminder of how far America had to go at that time in order to get where they needed to be. He said about this time in his life, I learned a lesson with regard to race that I never forgot. How people feel about you reflects the way you permit yourself to be treated. If you permit yourself to be treated differently, you are condemned to an unequal relationship. 
1935, he had risen from the head of the agriculture department to the third president of Tuskegee University at only 33 years old. He was conscious of his age, and he fibbed a little bit, telling the electoral committee that he was actually 34. I don't know what that extra year, like what difference that would have made. But anyways, all around, great year for him, because this was also the year that he got married to Catherine Moten. She was the daughter of Robert Moten, who was the second president of Tuskegee University, who Frederick was actually replacing. So Frederick hit the Tuskegee ground running. The veterinary program was obviously very dear to him, and he ensured that it was one of the best in the nation. It ended up graduating 75% of the country's veterinarians. He also created an engineering department as well as the commercial dietetics program, which combined professional cooking with business classes. And these two programs allowed students of color to access really prestigious internships all around the country. It was around this time that he developed a deep fascination with aviation. He first learned how to fly himself, and then he dedicated his time to teaching people of color to fly as well. This was not something that was particularly acceptable, socially or politically speaking, but Frederick was like, oh, what's that? I can't hear you over the propellers, bye. And because he is the powerhouse that he is, he managed to convince the U.S. government to create an entire airbase at Tuskegee. And not only an entire airbase, but the only one in the country that performed all three levels of pilot training, basic, advanced, and transition. This was the genesis of the Tuskegee Airmen, the first African-American military aviators in the U.S. Air Force. These incredible heroes were, of course, subject to every type of conceivable discrimination, even from their fellow soldiers. The program had rotating military commanders, some who were fair and non-bigoted, and others who insisted on segregation. The program nearly didn't get off the ground, <laughs> as certain government officials were fine training the pilots, but had no intention of sending them overseas to see combat, as they worried about friction between them and their white fellow pilots. The commanding officer of the U.S. Air Force at the time, General Henry Arnold, said, Negro pilots cannot be used in our present Air Corps units since this would result in Negro officers serving over white enlisted men. Great leadership there, Arnold. So the Tuskegee Airmen managed to rise above ah, all of this, and in April of 1943, they headed over to Europe and North Africa. The 922-man-deep air squadron were mostly African-American, but there was one guy from Trinidad and five from Haiti. Included in this group was the 99th Fighter Squadron, the first all-black flying squadron and the first to fight overseas. Unfortunately, seeing combat didn't make things any better for them back on base, though. It wasn't like... Now they were official pilots and people started to treat them with respect. That just didn't happen. Their first commanding officer, Colonel Robert Selway, was a total racist. And he strictly enforced segregation, even though there was an army regulation in place banning segregation on air bases. He openly defied it. He had the base's movie theater taped off into black and white sections. The black airmen were not allowed into the only officers club on the Air Force base. And when a black lieutenant named Milton Henry entered the club demanding equal treatment, he was court-martialed. Black pilots were never promoted, and they were referred to as trainees, even though they were cadets, just like their white fellow pilots. When the group was moved to Freeman Field, 
nice name, near Seymour, Indiana, things didn't get much better. All the black pilots were forced to live off base in housing projects. And when they finally did get an officer's club, it was called Uncle Tom's Cabin by the other pilots. The town of Seymour's laundry service refused to wash their uniforms, but they agreed to do the laundry of captured Nazis. Quick sidebar, I had no idea that captured Nazis were here in the U.S. Apparently, there were like 425,000 of them jailed at 700 bases across the U.S. during World War II. But we've already gone into a deep swerve to the left with this tangent, so let's bring it back to Frederick. So Frederick is responsible for the amazing Tuskegee Airmen, which came out of World War II with a perfect record. Not one single bomber lost to enemy planes in the entire war. This would end up being a huge leap towards the eventual total desegregation of the armed forces. Frederick's devotion to the overall improvement of his community extended beyond the university. At the time, most lower socioeconomic citizens of Tuskegee, Alabama, lived in wooden houses, which were susceptible to very frequent uh, destruction by fires, especially during the summer months. So being the man that he was, and like, sorry, I have to sidebar again. I really, I feel like we need to make someone of color finally a candidate for at least one denomination of U.S. currency. This guy would be a great start. Put him on a bill, put him on a coin. Like we, we can reassess, I think, Jefferson and Jackson at this point. I mean, this is just ridiculous that we don't have someone of color on a bill. So Frederick was like, how do I help? So he amasses the people and resources he has available to him. And he creates a program which trained low socioeconomic citizens in the building of new homes made of concrete. The U.S. government ended up copying his Tuskegee concrete block style homes when they created more and more low income and government housing. And as if all this wasn't enough, we have now come to what could arguably be described as his most lasting achievement, the establishment of the United Negro College Fund. We're going to call it the UNCF, which is what it commonly goes by today. So funding for black colleges ranged from unstable to laughable, which Frederick as president of Tuskegee was obviously very aware of. In 1944, the idea of the UNCF came to him. It was the very first cooperative funding initiative in a higher educational institute in American history. Jumping on board was a big old bag of money by the name of John D. Rockefeller Jr. John Jr. was the son of John Sr., John Sr. being the creator of Standard Oil, the first person in the U.S. to become a billionaire, and in today's money, one billion is about 16 billion, and the second richest person in the history of the modern world, the only richer one being a 15th to 16th century merchant and copper baron named Jacob Fugger. The richest man ever in the entire history of the world, right? Modern, Middle Age, and ancient times altogether. The richest man is a bit harder to figure out because we know that Emperor Augustus of ancient times was valued at $4.6 during his lifetime because he personally owned the entire country of Egypt and all of its resources there, obviously. But a Malayan emperor during the late 13th and early 14th centuries named Musa I was so wealthy largely due to the fact that his country was flush with gold and salt, that the amount of his fortune is considered so high that it cannot be calculated. So by the time John D. Rockefeller Sr. died in 1937, he was valued at $418 billion. So big old middle finger to Jeff Bezos right there. Given this milk and money bloodline, John Jr. was obviously flush with cash. I wish I could do a John Ralphio voice right there. So that combined 
with his passion for the project, helped the venture immensely. The UNCF would grow to become an organization that gives out 10,000 scholarships a year and has raised over $3.6 billion since its inception. This brought him to the attention of President Truman, and he was invited in 1946 to sit on his president commission. This group created pretty much every law and regulation related to higher education, and thanks to this commission, community colleges were invented. In 1953, he was made a director of the Phelps Stokes Fund, and the fund was a philanthropic organization dedicated to supporting African-American education, which had been started by Caroline Phelps Stokes. She was an heiress who puts the millions that she received from her mercantile magnet father to good use. During the decade that he was president of Tuskegee University, Frederick fought and worked for ways to make education accessible not only to African-Americans, but also to impoverished white people and Native Americans. During the remainder of his life, he would receive 20 honorary doctorate degrees for his total and complete dedication to the betterment of students and humans in his university, his community, and his country. One year before his death, he was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom by President Reagan in 1987. The following year, the NAACP awarded him the Spingarn Medal. Frederick and Catherine were married until his death on April 26, 1988. His cremated remains are held at Tuskegee University. My sources today were Wikipedia, Tuskegee University, and the United Negro College Fund. Thank you so much for joining me for our birthday celebration of Dr. Frederick D. Patterson. Please join me tomorrow when we celebrate the birth and life of Douglas Albert Monroe, the only human in the history of the Coast Guard to receive the Medal of Honor. See you then.